What's your problem? What is your solution? How do we want our lives to change beyond the COVID-19 virus crisis? That is the question of this special series of Camp Solutions. Abby Disney grew up in the fantasy and fairy tale world that has inspired children across the globe for generations. She became an outspoken critic of the executive pay at her family's company and a voice addressing the deep inequality in society. Welcome to Camp Solutions. You have been an advocate for addressing the issue of inequality in society. I'm wondering, when did it first, did you first realize that this was really becoming a problem? When you're growing up, you know, on the good side of favorable side of an unequal equation, you're not really aware of that, really. Um, it takes a long time to let it in, just how vast the, the gulf is. Um, so it wasn't until I was an adult in my 20s and 30s that I fully really embraced it. Actually, it was just with a friend this weekend who reminded me of this um, garlic picker strike we went to together uh, in 1984. And I remember thinking, wait, that's how hard it is to pick garlic? <laughs> you know, uh, there are little moments like that, that, you know, they pile up in you. And um, yeah. I think most people, a lot of people, kind of let those things go because it's too hard to think about, you know, and still get through your days. And I don't know how to do that. And so they really do make a, a really hideous pile in my conscience. And you started to speak out. So, of course, you know, I've, I've, I've read your uh, articles about that. And you make this point that some, let's uh, say, 40 years ago or so, the average uh, salary of a CEO was about maybe 30 times what yeah. people, what an average worker would get in a, in a company. Yeah. And by now, it's over a thousand times. And, yeah. and how, do you how do you explain that? Well, I do think that a lot of it has to do with this sort of unleashing of a kind of animal spirit in Wall Street and across the professional business world that started with, you know, people like Milton Friedman. It also started with people like Lewis Powell. Lewis Powell, who later became a Supreme Court justice in 1971, was hired by the, um, the business um, Chamber of Commerce to um, put together a memo that described all the ways in which business people felt they were being sort of cast as the bad guys in American society. And then it was a sort of recipe or a plan for fixing that. Mm -hmm. So Milton Friedman in 1970 said, um, as long as everybody plays by the rules, then, then greed is good. You act rationally in your own self-interest. But at the same time, Lewis Powell was saying, how about we change the rules? So he sort of unlocked this um, ferocious effort that went for years of rolling back regulations, rolling back taxes, taking all government control out of the business sector, and generally casting government as, as sort of the barrier to business. And, uh, and in the 80s, that kind of transformed into a privileging of the business mind and the business personality is sort of superior. And we all just engaged in that freely. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that they felt they had the latitude and the permission really to go kind of bananas. It is interesting that if you study, if, if one studies civilizations and, and, and history, you see this pattern repeating itself again and again. I mean, the Roman Empire ended in the same kind of situation. I'm okay. saying ended because yeah. you know, at some point it ends. Yeah. Uh, is that where we are going? Or, or 
can we yeah. rehearse all this? You know, I, I, um, I ask myself that question a lot. Um, so much of the economy of the rest of the world depends on whether or not the American economy is healthy. You know, we are the linchpin democracy, I mean, economy in a lot of ways. Yeah. So um, it's not just for Americans that that would be a tragic thing. But in terms of being the great empire in the, the big guerrilla country that sort of decides everything, I don't know if that's been good for us, honestly, in terms of character, in terms of how we conduct ourselves on the international stage and so forth. And I don't know really what you get out of that, um, except for the people at the very top in terms of gratification and power. So um, I don't know if we'd lose all that much if, we, if our um, dominance were to subside a bit. I think that might not be bad for the world um, as long as the whole system doesn't cave in. And honestly, under the weight of this inequality, it, it really does threaten to cave the whole system in. I mean, I'm very worried right now about things like how overextended people are in terms of personal debt, student debt, mortgages, and credit card debt. That, if those dominoes start to fall, I, I really, I don't see much hope for this economy. So you speak out about these issues and they are important issues. At the same time, you meet people in circles who are more wealthy than average Americans, yeah. I'd, I'd yeah, say. I do. What do you get back when you raise this issue? How, how aware are people yeah. on, the, on, the, on the good side of this, of this problem? Um, the awareness tends to subside the higher up you get on the chain, or, or not, actually the concern subsides. Uh -huh. So um, the irony is that the more money people have, the more they tend to go looking for money. Um, money has this weird capacity to make you feel like um, you live in an environment of scarcity. You know, so the, because of the way that people have of comparing themselves to each other and so forth. So the concern subsides because it takes a backseat to the concern for the immediate uh, achievement of a goal around if my net worth is 143 billion, well, I want to be the first trillionaire on earth. So um, if you watch um, Jeff Bezos over time um, and you just look at his physical change from when he was a young man to now, it's a very interesting thing to look at because you can see his entire personality and sensibility shift Mm -hmm. um, from one thing to something entirely else. And I do believe that too much money has a way of carving you out. Um, so, so I move among people who have a lot of money and um, a lot of them are with me, <laughs> but they're with me until it starts to involve something that might mean they would have to pay higher taxes or maybe give up their fourth house or, I mean, we're not going to be able to maintain everybody's fourth house. No. And, and address this inequality question. We, we, there's no win-win for this. No, that, that's an important point. It is giving. And, but the interesting thing is that, that you know, in, in this series of interviews, I also did an interview with a British professor, Richard Wilkinson, who has been studying this issue of inequality for, for a few decades. And one of his observations is that The interesting phenomenon is that for the people on the good side, or if you call it the good side, the wealthy side, you know, things don't get better either. You see more drug abuse, you see more depression, you see all kinds of things in more unequal societies that are not healthy for the wealthy, if you like. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I actually, I'm, I'm working on a 
project on this because I, what I've seen is that not only is, is your whole society kind of really set up to fail when it gets as lopsided as ours is now, it's the people in the position that everyone envies tend to be pretty unhappy. And if you go looking at the rates of drug abuse and the rates of um, divorce and the rates of suicide and those kinds of things in very wealthy families, you'll find that they actually mirror the rates at the bottom of the income spectrum. The poorest people live in a misery that if you measure it by those kinds of outcomes, it's, it's you know, it's, it's similar. So um, what, what I know is that um, I, I think that if you um, follow the impulse, which most wealthy people have, of um, surrounding yourself by other people who are like you, because it's uncomfortable to be directly in conversation with people you know are suffering, um, and then you sort of give yourself latitude to for the private planes and the private rooms and the private lessons and the private schools, eventually you can build a world that allows you to kind of forget about the dissonance you feel, the, 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 um, the total alienation that, that you're experiencing now from the rest of the human race. And I think if you let yourself be swallowed up by that, um, it's easy to think that um, nothing needs fixing and that everything is fine. No, it's a very difficult issue. And of course, it's clear that it has become worse because of that growing inequality and people just basically fall out of the system. So, yeah. of course, one of the issues, and you advocate for that also, is, uh, uh, is tax. We, we have only been lowering taxes for decades. Yes. That, that yes. obviously is something we see the results of. So taxes can inc be increased, have to increase, I suppose. That is one thing, but what, what is really needed here? Well, what's really needed actually is, is a massive shift in mindset, socially and culturally and politically, because uh, uh, what happened through the 70s and then we, when we elected Ronald Reagan and people just fell for it, you know, people just fell for what he was selling. And um, it's, it makes me crazy because I remember how angry we were and how, try, how we were trying to get through. And I remember how genial he was and everybody liked his sense of humor. And yet I knew what he was doing in Latin America. How, how were people all right with this just because he was smiling? So, so something started emptying out in the American consciousness. I, it really did in the 80s. And it's just kept going in that, in that direction, on that trajectory toward caring less and less if you can be sure that's never going to affect you. So people have looked the other way for a long time. Um, they have bought this thing that both Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were selling, which was poor people are poor because they're stupid and lazy and they've done something wrong. Um, so, so I think underlying like a particular policy or a particular way of doing business before all of it, a mindset shift has to happen. And that starts in culture, and that starts with speaking up publicly. I mean, it didn't take Bernie Sanders very long to catch fire because what he was saying about the inequality, people needed, wanted, needed someone to say that. Yeah. And, um, and he was pointing something out that was as plain as the nose on your face. And um, there's only so long you can go ignoring the nose on your face. And um, so I think that we're right next to a big shift that will happen. Um, Hopefully. You know, the situation now has changed so much that I'm wondering what would have happened if he would have been still running now. I think there's yeah. even more awareness than there was a few months ago. I, I think that's because 
Bernie was opening the doors of people's minds and people said, yes, and I'll walk right through that door and see what's on the other side. So without him, we wouldn't be having the conversation about inequality at all that we're having now. And uh, Elizabeth Warren also expanded the space there was for that. Julian Castro, also a really good voice for it. It, it. It's not just a fringe element in society that has observed rightly um, that this is not working for us. Any of us, the rich or the poor, um, and uh, it's, there's a, an expanding group of people who are now willing to, um, to go there and, and find out and think and, ex and experiment with the idea of changing it. Um, you're also involved with uh, an initiative called Just Capital, which, by the way, is a sponsor of this very uh, program, this very series of interviews. To what extent do you see the positive change in, in business that we need? Um, I haven't seen all that much positive change yet, um, but Just Capital is part of an effort to address this mindset shift that needs to happen. Because a lot of what's happening is happening because the CEOs and the C-suite executives today were in business school in the 80s. And they came out of business school with um, you know, an idea of how it was done. And, and when Milton Friedman told us that the best possible thing was to for us to seek out our own self-interest. He gave them moral coverage. You know, he gave them, he offered them an alibi, morally speaking, um, to be able to just go and pursue their own self-interest as ferociously as they have. And, and that, you know, that's not just about, you know, the, the greedy moves people make. That's about a higher tolerance for risk. That is about not understanding that people of color and women and so forth need to be in the, your ranks. That's about a whole range of things. I go back and forth, actually, wildly between wanting to burn it all down and wanting to reform it from the inside. <laughs> so, um, just is the just capital is probably the of the people trying to reform it from the inside, one of the best. Um, and then I meet incredible business people who really are thinking in terms of, you know, is there such a thing as too much money? There really, it's not a crazy question. No. Having too much money is a thing, and I don't hear anybody talking about it. $143 billion is too much money, period, full yeah. stop. Um, so, you know, there, there, so there are CEOs saying, like, my you know, $200,000 salary or whatever it is um, will get me just fine through everything I need to get through. And uh, I don't see why I shouldn't, because the company is being profitable, pass some of the profits along down the line. One of the things I was thinking when I, when I was fighting the company um, was that a CEO should really be sort of like a ship's captain, you know, because like there you are and you're accepting all of the benefits of leadership and all the accolades and the public attention and all the rest of it mm -hmm. and you've got this profitable company. Um, but if the ship, you know, is going down and you don't make sure everybody gets on the lifeboats before you do, that is, that's the most fundamental job you have. So if you're at a profitable company and people can't put food on the table, before you take your bonus, wouldn't you, wouldn't just common sense tell you, want to make sure that people are feeding their children and housing, you know, and getting what they need in terms of healthcare. So I have nothing against bonus in and of itself. Well, what I have a problem with is taking it in the absence of making sure everybody's okay. In, in, in the army also, I mean, the, the leaders are supposed to leave exactly. last, the scene last, right? So, and, and, and make sure that everybody is okay. That is a good comparison. 
And you have these situations that people are, as you have described, uh, you know, live on food stamps while they're serving in a company. That is, yeah. is insane. So from there, would that be, you know, if I could make you uh, president for uh, just a few hours yeah. and you, you could <laughs> sign this executive order, what would be on that? What would be in that order? <laughs> oh, there are a few things that I would do very specifically, like end the carried interest loophole and tax capital gains as income, um, period, end of story. Because right now, because we're privileging capital gains, what we've said is we value ownership over work. So that's as a merely as a, as a philosophical thing, I would just end that tomorrow and make sure that working people were um, paying the same or less taxes than, than the people who were wealthy. And most wealthy people, most of their income is in capital gains. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so that's a very specific granular thing that I would do right out of the gate. And then I would lead my country. You know, I would lead my country. I would go and talk to people and find out where the problems were. And I'd spend time with the CEOs. And I would mandate a worker presence on every board of directors in the company. And I would mandate women and people of color represented in those leadership circles. And I would, I would mandate it. I don't care what people say about tokenism. We have more than proven we won't do this on our own. So, so those are the those are the things I probably emphasize. And then I would rebuild the social network, the safety network that we used to have. Mm -hmm. I mean, our public schools are failing. Our healthcare system is a joke. Our roads and highways are falling apart. Um, it's just like in every single thing that used to be in place for a person in the 1950s to go to work, pull down a salary and raise his family that he could rely on, she or he could rely on. Those have all been taken out from under people. Even the college education is an, is an invitation of risk now because of the amount of debt people have to take on. So I just forgive student debt right away, period. Um, but, but, the, but, but the rebuilding of the safety net really needs to be front and center. We need to make sure that people are getting the, the rewards of the covenant that I thought we made as a country when we throw our lot in together and throw our taxes in, there are certain things we agree to. Um, and what I did not agree to was considering the, the starvation and the insecurity of a wide swath of the population to be an acceptable thing. Let me ask you this. What are you proud of when you look at Disney? Yeah, I'm proud of so much of it, honestly. And one of the reasons I'm fighting this is I, I sort of want to save them from themselves because, frankly, they are um, right now right on the, the razor's edge of destroying a brand they were handed um, by their rapaciousness and the way they, they treat their employees. And uh, that brand is, a, I think, a national treasure, independent of what it means for revenues and the rest of it. Um, when I meet people and they hear my last name and they tell me what my family's name means to them, they always go a little soft in their eyes and, and their faces go a little soft and you can see them. They're thinking about their childhoods. They're thinking about their parents and families and things. What Disney does is it offers, um, families and everyone a chance to kind of slow down and connect with the things that matter. Do you think that that the moment is is here or is coming closer uh, than it ever was. I mean, we had the Occupy movement some years ago. Nothing really changed after that. But can we escape change one more time? 
No, we can't. And, and I, I would just push back on the idea that Occupy didn't achieve anything because we wouldn't be talking about the 1% at all if it hadn't been for the Occupy movement. And I know many, many, many people who were in their 20s um, in the Occupy movement who learned a lot. And this proliferation of grassroots organizing that is really coming to fruition in this moment, I mean, this wouldn't be such an effective moment if there weren't powerful networks of grassroots people everywhere in the country, small towns, big cities, everywhere, um, that were strong and well-versed in how to organize and how to push for political change. Um, so we can't resist change partly because, you know, everybody 40 and under is not having it anymore. And um, the longer we resist it, the worse the change will feel for the old folks like me. And um, so I don't see them going home satisfied until they get systemic change. What are the positive signs that you see? Oh my gosh. The, I mean, I, you know, quarantined with a, a heavy heart. And all I could think about was the meaning of what would happen to the economy. And um, I'm still worried about that because I know that in August we're going to have a, a flood of evictions and a, just a massive uptick in, in homelessness across the country. And, I, and there are people I know and love that I worry deeply about. So that, that really was a hard thing to sit still with for, what was it, 10 weeks. And then, and then these protests erupted and my heart broke even further because I thought, oh my God, this is a moment of such mourning and suffering and people are so hurting people I love were hurting and then it just took this turn and I started seeing city councils say well we really do have to think about that reform isn't cutting it we really do have to think about deconstructing this whole thing and rebuilding it in a different way we have to think differently about public safety um, we have to think differently about who the police serve um, and uh, and as I've seen that start to really take shape in a real, actual, substantive way, um, I've gotten much more optimistic. And it was just the thing that I needed to make me feel better about the plague, <laughs> was this amazing strategic organizing and accomplishment of concrete goals that I'm seeing around me now. Abby, um, finally, what is your favorite Disney movie and why? <laughs> um, you know, I have two favorites, and one is Dumbo, and the other is Pinocchio, because Dumbo is um, a perfect gem. It's like there is no loose end in that film in terms of storytelling and even in terms of visual storytelling. It is, um, it's the most tight and lucid piece of storytelling anybody you know, really has. And then the, the visual, the art, if you watch that scene when they're building the um, circus tents, it's straight out of a WPA mural. I mean, it really is absolutely breathtaking. I mean, I would, those backgrounds are incredible. So I love that. And then my second favorite is Pinocchio. Um, also an old one that didn't really do that well at the box office at the beginning, but um, I love Jiminy Cricket. I really love him. And part of the reason I love him is because um, he speaks in these funny Midwestern expressions that were exactly how my grandfather spoke. He says, golly gee willikers and things like that. It's so cute. And, but, but he's there specifically to say the pesky ethical thing, you know, and, and like he's, that's his whole role in the film. And without him, there's no, there's no achievement of the, the satisfaction of the ending and the real boy and everything. And, uh, you know, I, 
we could all use, you know, a Jiminy Cricket in our lives. <laughs> what, what is his message? So his message is very simple. Always let your conscience be your guide. And what would happen to American business if everyone let their conscience be their guide? Thank you, Evan. Thank you. Deep and painful inequality disturb harmony and peace in society. Abby Disney uses her name and connections to raise awareness and support for very necessary change. She has the conscience of Jiminy Cricket on her side. This was Camp Solutions. Stay well and see you next time. Camp Solutions is presented by the World Business Academy on behalf of Just Capital. The COVID-19 Corporate Response Tracker of Just Capital is tracking the best practices of corporations serving the needs of their employees and of the communities they serve in this time of national crises. See how the best of America's largest employers are treating stakeholders amid the coronavirus crisis at JustCapital.com.